Hello and welcome to the Body Track Academy, created by EPs for EPs. We'll cover all things clinical, business and personal growth to help you and the exercise physiology industry reach its potential. If you enjoyed this episode and find something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review and tell your friends to check it out. If you haven't already joined the Body Track Academy on Facebook, look us up, join our community of exercise physiologists and access more great content. All right, I'm back talking to Holly today. Not too long ago, we had a good uh, sort of intro chat about neuro conditions and exercise physiology, but today we're going to talk more specifically about Parkinson's disease. So, I mean, most people are listening, I assume, have a general understanding of what PD is, but Holly, can you give us um, a more specific kind of overview or definition of Parkinson's? Yeah, so um, Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disorder um, and essentially results in a change in dopamine levels, um, which in turn results in motor and non-motor symptoms. So um, commonly we might think of someone with Parkinson's as having a tremor or some gait changes, um, and and that is some of the symptoms, but there is a wide variety and and very... um, varied range as well of symptoms yeah so that's definitely what I think of is is the tremor um you think not everyone has it yeah Muhammad Ali Michael J Fox and the tremor and then I think um seeing that shuffling gait sometimes you know in a shopping center I'll see that and think oh okay maybe they've got Parkinson's yes what other very educated (laughs) (laughs) what other some of the other lesser known symptoms yeah so um as you said the tremor and the freezing of gait absolutely some really big ones another one is bradykinesia which is pretty much just the slowed movement um a lot of people with parkinson's will have difficulty initiating movement as well so trouble getting up out of a chair um there's changes in posture so um often become quite stooped and and particularly from that head and chin position um uh, also some changes in balance as well. Uh, and then there's our non-motor symptoms as well, which play a really big role. Things like depression, anxiety, changes in, um, voice projection. Uh, yeah, a, a wide variety. Okay. Mm. So it can present a lot of different, a lot of different symptoms. Mm. Um, and when, I mean, when is ideal, but also when are you seeing PD patients present mm. to you for exfiz? Yeah, so ideally we want to see people um, newly after diagnosis, so within really that first three months if possible. Um, and obviously there are a lot of really good neurologists out there that are referring to exercise because there is a lot of evidence to support movement um, in managing those symptoms and in, um, I guess, slowing the progression of those symptoms as well. Uh but unfortunately, we still, while that, that it does happen and we do see people somewhat newly after their diagnosis, we often do see people like four, five years down the track, even more, you know, like eight years into their diagnosis mm-hmm. um, when symptoms are getting pretty bad. So they might, um, you know, start seeing us because they can no longer get out of the chair without being assisted or um, their mood and energy is really low and their fatigue levels are really high um, and they aren't exercising themselves because of all of those reasons. And 
Um, that's commonly when we do start to see people. But and, and while we can make a difference at that stage, it's so much better if we can get them in early um, yeah. because we're starting at a higher level. So yeah. we're going and maintaining for a lot longer. So, yeah, we definitely want to be seeing people early on. And do you think it's just a, a lack of understanding and education about um, the the impact and the benefit yeah. that you can have when you start early on versus waiting till you've gen- degenerated to a point that there's yeah. not as much you can do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of, um, I guess, complex situations for people who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Some people are um, you know, in their 70s, 80s. Some people are in their 50s and 60s. They might still be working. It's a massive change to their life and exercise might just be the last thing that they really think about. Um, for some people, they've never been exercises, so it's just not natural to think, I want to be exercising. For others, they they come in and, you know, they've been cycling since they were 20 or they walk every day or they go to yoga and those things are great. Um, but uh, as an exercise physiologist, we know that there's really specific things that we can do to, I guess, make a bigger impact um, from an exercise point of view. Yeah. So even that understanding of that's great that you have been exercising, mm. but yeah. if you just even had, uh, you know, one or two sessions early on to make sure what you're doing is yeah. right. Yeah, that absolutely. And it, it is that way as well. It's not as if you have to be seeing someone every week if they're early on. Like you can absolutely be seeing someone every six, 12 weeks, even longer if it is appropriate um, because that education and that understanding of what can you do at home and how can it be the best possible thing that it can be for you um, is is really important in those early stages. Yeah. And so is there like an average age for Ooh. the condition? There or- probably is. I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, a are lot you, of the are you seeing older or yeah, middle aged? A lot of the people that I see, I guess, who are newer in that diagnosis are probably like within five years since diagnosis mm. are actually relatively young. So we're talking like sixty to sixty five. Yep. Um, they might be newly retired. They might have retired as a result of being diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, I have had a couple of people recently that have been in a role where their voice is really important. One person was like a tour instructing, um, one was a lecturer. So they'd had noticed that they were really fatigued from all the speaking and from all of that high energy work Um, and they decided to prioritise their health a little bit more. So, yeah, we see a a lot but then there's also that side where I might be seeing people when they're in their 80s as well. So there is a bit of variety but it'd be interesting. I actually don't know the average age. I should look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Jump on Google, right? Yeah, now. Google it right now. <laughs> we'll get back to you with an answer. Uh, okay, so let's talk um, assessing a new mm. patient with yeah. PD. What sort of screening tools um, and assessment do you take someone through the first time you meet them? Yeah, so um, an initial assessment is really important. Obviously, there's lots of different um, paths you can take, but going through that subjective questioning is really important because that will give you a lot more understanding of what you really need to focus on. Um, For some people, they might really be noticing those motor symptoms and changes in gait and balance and all of that, but they might actually be, others might be more um, concerned with their changes in mood or their sleep quality and things like that. So it's important that you get that whole picture from the start and their medical history. Um, Obviously, you want to know about 
previous exercise and previous injuries and if there's other conditions that we need to be aware of, medication and all of those things as well. Um, But I think as an EP, having that holistic approach is really important. Um, So we want to make sure that we are addressing those other things so that we can potentially refer on or give them some education and and, um, different information about how they can help those other things as well. Um, And do you think that finding out uh, what's most important or most concerning to mm, them, like even if yeah, something absolutely. has progressed further, if that's not their biggest concern and they mm. really want to focus on something, exactly. getting that understanding. Like, absolutely. Adherence is a massive part of exercise for PD. So if we're not giving them that like salience in terms of what what really matters to them, like we can say, you know, oh, this person really needs to build their lower limb strength and power, but if they don't care about that, then they're not going to do it. So it's really important to um, to make sure that you're listening, actively listening is really important and making sure that you're addressing their goals um, as, a, as the forefront of that assessment. Um, and then moving more into your objective measures, there's lots of different objective assessments that you can do. Um, I think some of the more common ones that I complete, particularly for um, participants that go into my PD empowerment group um, are things like a timed up and go. Uh, a 10-metre walk test is really important, um, looking at their gait speed as well as their steps that they're taking within that test, and you can get quite a bit of information from a 10-metre walk test. Um, you can also uh, include a cognitive and a motor task in those tests as well. Um, so, for example, getting someone to do the 10-metre walk test while clapping their hands is a good motor one. Um, and then a cognitive task might be counting backwards from 100 in threes or something while they're doing that. And that's mm-hmm. actually quite tricky. And you'll often notice that their steps will increase or their time will mm. um, also increase to get across that 10 metres. Yeah. I actually um, love seeing all the different, because you can variations. kind of come up with anything. Yeah, yeah a cognitive test. Sometimes yeah. I'm pretty creative and sometimes yeah. I'm really I like not. the pen, <laughs> pen clicking and swapping hands yeah, is a cool one. I don't know. Always oh, see something different. I like what <laughs> yeah. seeing what people come yeah. up with. I've really gotten on board with the um the cognitive tasks around the boys and girls' names at the moment. And there's some really crazy ones that people come up with. <laughs> Are you writing those down, Holly? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Watch out, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so that's a really good objective assessment. Um and then things like grip strength is really important, particularly if someone has a tremor in one side, you'll often see that they are a little bit weaker in that hand. Um, and it, once again, going along that tremor line, dexterity and fine motor skills are often impacted. So you can assess that through like a 10 bean test. And even if you don't have the resources to do that, it's really easy to just make something up. You can just get 10 pencils, put them on one side of the table and time how long it takes them to put it to the other side of the table sort of thing. So there's a lot of things that you can do in terms of those objective measures. Um, other things as well is like your sit to stand assessment um, if they have cardiometabolic conditions, like a six minute, six minute walk test and things like that is going to be relevant. I think it definitely depends obviously on the person and their medical history, but, um, making sure that you're being, you're addressing those specific, um, areas, particularly gait, I think is really important. Um, and then obviously big one balance. Yeah. Um, you don't want to forget that because false risk is really high in that population. Um, 
and yeah, balance assessment is there's huge a huge amount of balance assessments that you can do, um, and obviously we want to be prescribing some balance exercises. So knowing what level we're prescribing them at is important too. Yeah. yeah, cool. So then using all that information that you've gathered from the assessment is. Is there a typical exercise prescription or completely yeah. based off the the stage or the level that you assess them at? Mm. How does that all work? Before I uh, jump into that, there was a, one other thing I oh, forgot yeah. to mention. <laughs> um, the other thing that I've recently been trying to implement a lot more and I've found has been really helpful, um, particularly for those non-motor symptoms, but also for motor symptoms, is doing questionnaires. It's something that's so obvious, but it often is the thing that we put to the back burner. Um for whatever reason, sometimes it's just that we forget about it or we time in the assessment. You've got so many other yeah, things you want to do. Exactly. So um, it can be really helpful with those long term focuses. And sometimes, as well, people will actually give you more information in those questionnaires that you might not have prompted in your questioning mm. um, as well. So, yeah, that's just one thing to add in. Yeah. And I think sometimes we'll either send them out before the assessment mm. or afterwards so that they have time to kind yeah. of think and consider their answers when absolutely. they're not it's with a good someone in front of them home. pressing them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that also can help you sometimes to give them um, some education around seeing other practitioners as well. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. All right, on to prescription. Yes. So um, your question was around X. Is there a typical thing yeah. or what does a session look like? Yeah, so I, I guess it, it definitely varies like anything um, and it does depend on how much exercise history that person has. Um, if someone is a pretty pretty familiar with exercise, they might walk every day, um, they might do a yoga class once a week, for example. Um, in that case, I'm going to get them into some pretty hard exercise straight away. Um, encouraging them to be moving daily is really good and I often like to try and give them some um, some exercises that they can easily include in their day daily tasks sort of thing. So something that I often will look at, particularly if they have some changes with their gait or they're noticing some shuffling or they're um, struggling with something with their walking, maybe even fatigue with walking, is giving them some marching exercises. I find they're really effective for just making sure that they're clearing the floor, that they're step distance is good um and so many people respond really well to that as well Mm -hmm. um and they can see how it's relevant as well yeah and it's a simple one like you can get someone to march up the hallway you know and you can add different tasks to that as well like cognitive things as well so um that's a a really good thing in terms of exercise prescription um there's going to be different elements depending on the goals but the big thing is making sure that particularly for those relatively new to their diagnosis power and amplitude and making the movement really big and loud is super important so um there's lots of different exercises that you can do but we want to make sure that we're addressing those powerful movements making sure that we're getting some sort of coordination or dual task happening um as well and then really going from there and trying to make sure that they're challenged is really important yeah yeah Okay, so you mentioned that example was someone who's a little bit more familiar with exercise. Mm. If someone has no history of like any real physical activity but yeah. they have taken the step with their diagnosis to come and see yeah. you, yep. 
you want to progress them to those powerful movements ideally as quickly as possible mm. but how, is that difficult for someone who's not used to exercise sometimes it can be but sometimes it's actually not too bad it does it does just depend on the person sometimes as well but i think like anyone starting exercise you just have to be mindful of the fact that they might be in their 60s or 70s and if they haven't done much exercise before their gross motor patterns and things like that might not be as good as someone who is a pretty familiar exerciser so just making sure that um we're still going to get them to that level of working really hard but it might take six weeks of them doing some go back to basic yeah some sit to stands we might get them doing some tandem balance stuff might like a theraband row just some things that i i just feel a bit more comfortable giving them into those bigger more aggressive movements if i have built a bit of a foundation with them and i think Giving them that education also makes them realize, oh, no, this person's on my side. Like they, they're not going to hurt me with exercise. Not throwing me in the deep yeah, end straight away. absolutely, because a lot of people, um, if they haven't exercised before, they might think, oh, I'm going to get injured or something, whereas we as exercise physiologists, we know what to do and what to prescribe to different levels. So that's the approach that I like to take, but I'm always going to put some things in there that are giving them a little bit of a hint of what's to come sort of thing. So we might do like some boxing movements or, you know, something that includes they might do a sit to stand, but then they've got to yell out some words so it's nice and loud. So they're still getting that um, powerful big focus, but it's just a bit more graded um, in getting them into those uh, movement patterns, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And so that's a lot about the motor function yeah aspect that you're prescribing Mm -hmm. do you prescribe or how much um during sessions do you talk about those non-motor symptoms yeah so there are um I guess with the voice uh side of things it kind of crosses over a little bit but that's probably one of the things that I notice the most is that someone um might be starting to soften their voice quite a bit or they'll start loud but as they go through it gets quieter and um their facial expressions change or um they're not as expressive in their face um and things like that and i i might often address it and say oh have you noticed that you're like i I can't actually really hear you very well or you're mumbling a little bit um and then they might say oh yes actually like my wife can't hear me often or you know something along those lines like my daughter said that I she couldn't hear me very well or or something like that um because they often will notice it or another thing that someone said to me recently was I I realized that in family photos I'm not smiling (laughs) and I and like he didn't know that was the yeah when he sees the photo back yeah yeah so little things like that and that's one of those things that I'm a big advocate for trying to get um, people to see a speech pathologist or a speech therapist um, because they have some really great um, skills and I guess they're educating as well but there's great ways that they can teach people techniques to be able to change that around and to be able to feel more confident and that increases their social interactions and makes them feel better and all of those things improves quality of life because they don't feel like they're hidden in the back of the room sort of thing so that's a big one that I see a lot of. The other thing that I see a lot of in terms of um, non-motor symptoms is mental health. Mm. Um, Just the fact that they've been diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition is a massive, um, a massive thing. So that definitely affects mental health. So um, 
psychology counseling can be really um, important and even just talking to people in the class and getting them or in the sessions and and getting them to feel like you know this it's okay to feel this way and um, making sure that they know that there is support there and there's really good support groups for Parkinson's as well I know Parkinson's Queensland has a number of different support groups that um, occur and they have meetups and things like that so that's really good as well because we know that social interaction and having a support network does improve mental health and quality of life so those sort of um, things are really relevant as well mm. yeah and exercise helps those yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. added benefit yeah added yeah. benefit absolutely and I think that's um, often one of the benefits of working with an exercise physiologist, kind of the the frequency and the duration that you work with this population, mm. that you are able to notice those changes. Yeah. Um, clinically, you know to look for them. And yes. so family members who might see them more frequent, frequently mm. don't notice the changes or they're not sure when it's, you know, kind of yeah. more rapidly declining Absolutely. or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, referring out and knowing, okay, red flag, I need to recommend someone else yeah. in the care team is it, uh, an important role of the EP yeah. in management as well. For sure, for mm. sure. Um, yeah, and in terms of like even things like memory and stuff like that, it's it's sometimes something that the clients will pick up on a little bit or they might have, once again, family or friends or something or we notice it too and that's something that we can look at putting into our exercise sessions and they feel like they're actively working on that as well. Yeah. So they feel better about it, you know, um, like just including super simple things like I want you to, like the number task before, I want you to remember this sequence while you do this exercise and I'm going to ask you yell, yell it out at the end sort of thing. So yeah. super simple and it's it's adding to that dual tasking um, but it's addressing those things as well. So I think there's, yeah, with Parkinson's there's so many different things that you can do with exercise. Um, so it's important to know as much as you can to mm. be able to help them as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. And any other tips and tricks for, I know, sort of with mood, um, motivation and adherence, mm. especially in the later stages, can be difficult. Yeah. How are you making sessions enjoyable or is it getting that buy-in early on so it's habit by then? Yeah. A few different things, like obviously having that habit's really helpful um, and they can see the benefit and know that it's important. But I think a big thing is getting family, friends, support work on side um, and making sure that they might go for a walk with their dad or, you know, doing these things to make sure that it is a bit more motivating. Another big thing that I am a massive advocate for with this population is group sessions. Um, it's so good and it's so fun to have a group session yeah. um, and you can turn up the music and get everyone to be really involved and they laugh and think it's hilarious because they're yelling out different things <laughs> and, like, it, it can be pretty funny. Um, so I think that absolutely improves motivation because they, they're not only making sure that they're coming to the session for themselves and because I want them to come along but they're coming because their friends are in the class and they know that they – are doing it for them as well because it's it's better as a group and they're all going through the same sort of things and and they can they talk to each other about things and and it really creates a great environment for that so yeah groups I think is probably um, one of the best 
best things you can do um, for getting that adherence and motivation. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Final question. So from when um, a couple of years ago you first started working with PD clients to the way that you work with them now, any big learnings, big changes in the way that you practice and what you do? Yes, absolutely. I did not realize how hard I needed to push this population when I first started working as an EP. Um, I think it's pretty easy to see them as being something that you want to care for and, and nurture, but really you need to push them hard to make sure that they're going to get the, as much benefit as they can out of exercise. So um, yeah, making sure that I and getting them to reach those high RPE levels is super important. We try and get them to eight out of 10 for every single movement that they do. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean that they, you know, they might do a couple of reps of um, an exercise, making sure that it's eight out of 10, but they have a one-to-one work rest ratio. So yeah. they are getting that rest as well, but everything they do needs to be hard. Mm. So um, that is definitely what I didn't realize. And it wasn't until I did that PD warrior course that I was like, whoa, I need to work them harder. Cause I was pretty sore the day after doing yeah, the I course. remember you coming in. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was definitely a big, big part of that course was um, realizing the potential of what you can do and making a difference so yeah yeah and that's probably a good indicator I mean Holly is pretty fit if she did a course practicing the you know practical component practicing those exercises and was feeling it the next day then that's kind of the level that then absolutely they need to be working yes yeah that course is full-on like if you do do it be ready to exercise for an entire day carb load (laughs) yeah (laughs) take a good lunch Awesome. All right. Some great tips and practical things that uh, people can take away and start putting into practice straight away, which is what we love. Thanks again, Holly. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Body Track Academy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and found something useful, you know what to do. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a review, and tell your friends to check it out. If you're not already in the Body Track Academy on Facebook, look us up. Join our community of exercise physiologists and access more great content.